HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, our weekly food news roundup. Fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote an episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. Should you eat the cheese rind? Can you eat the rind? These are like the biggest questions. We'll answer all of your questions about mysterious mushrooms and crazy curds. Plus, we'll give you a sneak listen to the newest season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. I'm here today with James Peisker and Chris Carter, the founders of Nashville-based butcher shop Porter Road, and we're going to be talking about how they work with farmers in Tennessee and Kentucky to sell better meat. Welcome, James and Chris. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. So I think we should just dive into your origin story. Um, I We were talking a little bit of before this about how Porter Road came to be. Can you kind of walk us back and tell me a little bit about your inspiration? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. What inspired <laughs> us? Um, well, Chris and I, so Chris and I were young culinarians when we met. We had uh, worked in a bunch of different restaurants across the country, both culinary school grads. Uh, and we met and instantly realized that we had a very similar like-minded mindset of uh, the way the food industry should push forward to become something, something different than it is. Or really Something more was. like it used to be. Yeah. So a modern version of what we used to have. And um, we worked at a restaurant that was uh, claiming farm to table, that was trying to do something that we didn't think they were following through enough with, which um, led us on a journey and a path to where we are today. Um, 
and it's been educational and a fun ride the whole way. Uh, we actually had only known each other for two months before we started this business together. Wow. Which our, our lawyer, who had known Chris since he was a wee little kid, told us... Told us it was a terrible idea <laughs> as she pushed our articles of organization at us. Terrible idea. But I knew... So I, I had just... Well, I met Chris when we had just moved to Nashville, uh, me and my, my wife, and we were getting our hardwood floors redone, and I was on the line working cr- with Chris. I was the fish cook. He was the meat cook, and I told him that you know I was going to pop a tent, and we were going to uh, sleep A hundred degree weather. Yeah, it was in the middle of the summer in the middle of Nashville, which is pretty muggy and pretty hot, and he, you know, some guy who I'd known for three or four days said, well, I'm going to bring you my camper. And I was like, well, you know, I really appreciate that, but that's too much. I don't know you. You know, campers are really expensive. Not and, this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, it was the thought that counts. And, you know, I, I told him no. I appreciate it. He asked me where I lived. And next thing I know is I'm pitching up a tent in my backyard. I hear ruckus in my front yard. And it's Chris and his little brother, Daniel. And they're setting up the tent. And, you know, they have a Looking plug. Looking for a plug, and, yeah. Yeah, Where do I plug this in? <laughs> and I was like, okay, you're amazing. This is a really special, kind, unique guy. And once we get the... The camper set up, plugged in, the air conditioning's running. I'm like really excited that I don't have to sit in the heat any longer or suffocate from the fumes of hardwood <laughs> floors getting redone. Next thing I know, uh, Chris's little brother Daniel's coming running around this camper getting chased by a pot belly pig. What? So we're in Chef Whites and Checks. Yeah, in the middle of Nashville, which, you know, is, is a metropolitan area. And, you know, we're in a this neighborhood. Isn't farmland. No, it's not. You shouldn't see pigs out here. So next thing I know, all three of us are running away from this pig because it comes and starts biting at Chris's ankles. So it's two guys in chef whites. And Getting chased down the street by a pig. By a pig. Where did the pig come from? Belonged just belonged to a neighbor girl that was out uh, looking for. Yeah, it was her uh, pet pig. Yeah. I'm afraid that you were going to, I thought you were going to say, and that was the first pig that no, we hung him up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was before um, we decided that there was something wrong with the status quo in the meat industry. And we looked at ourselves and said, we want better for our friends and family. So let's do something about it. Right. And at the time you, you couldn't even find local meat except for every Saturday at the farmer's market. That was frozen. It was frozen. It was triangle cut. Yeah. Poorly butchered. Um, so we struggled with that ourselves and we knew that, that, you know, other, other people were struggling with the same issues. So, yeah, what were some of the things you were seeing? Um, you, James, you mentioned, you know, um, as chefs, you were seeing everyone do things wrong. Um, and well, I wouldn't say everybody. I'm not saying but, everybody's wrong, and I'm right. Because we had to learn from somebody. Yeah, there was right. a lot of people out there trying to do it correctly, but like Chris was saying, there was a lot of things staying in the way. There was a lot of barriers that were keeping us from what could be and what should be. And we had mentioned earlier when we were talking, you know, farm to table is an overbeaten term, but it's overbeaten because now it's the standard. And people look at you funny if you're not farm to table because it's a system that has been proven that does work. It's better for the consumer. It's better for the, you know, agricultural I mean, even our stadiums in Nashville source from us and they serve a sustainable 14-day dry-aged burger at a hockey game. Wow. So, I mean, it's education. And yeah. It's, it's, it's knowledge, you know, and people wanting to know where their meat comes from or their food in general. So. 
So, so what were some of the barriers to making that kind of meat more available, and how did you? So, Chris and I learned the hard way by doing it always and trying to figure out, okay, why is it so difficult? So that led us to we started as a so Porter Road started eight years ago as a farmers market booth pop up. So we had a folding picnic table, no tablecloth, a little pop up tent. Buying um, one pig a week from a local farmer, butchering it in a uh, basement of a rent kitchen. Um, and a lot of the barriers come when you go into it with, through transporting one pig. How do we make you know the economics of scale work to where you can still do it in a very traditional way that heals the land and it takes care of the land and takes care of the animal and the people that are involved and not overdo it. But also you have to make it big enough to where it makes economical sense. Mm-hmm. So that's always been the challenge with what we've been doing as we keep on continuing to grow and push because we don't want – Porter Road to be an elitist product because it shouldn't be. It should be for everybody. But one of the big things that keeps it from them is the stigma of ground beef is ground beef or bacon is bacon because it's really not. It's a good, well-raised product that is butchered in a proper way, in a sustainable way, in a really well-thought-out way is a much better, more intense, more flavorful, more nutritious, better product. And it, it has to do with breaking that, that thought of that my ground beef is ground beef, that my ground beef I sell at porterroad.com is the same ground beef that a large fast food chain uses. And I would say the first obstacle for us getting to that point was forming the relationships with the farmers. I mean, we were two 20-something kids coming onto their farm where they had you know, been stuck in the same system for you know, 20 years. And we're coming on and we're telling them about, you know, our new concept and we're going to buy all their animals whole and, you know, and just to convince them that that was really going to happen. I mean, they've, they've been told that before and been led down that, that, that path. So for us to go and open a butcher shop in order to do a whole animal, which is what we've always done since we, you know, we started was probably our first obstacle was just getting those farmers to, to get on board. Mm. And once we got those farmers on board, we would start to open up new challenges and new the way we like to refer to it as you know peek behind the curtain and it just seems that with the you know not only the meat industry with the food industry itself is there's a lot of curtains put up so every time you get through one of them you open up another one and you're like oh shit wait (laughs) (laughs) wait they do what they can feed them what and then you start to get deeper into it which led chris and i you know, craving more knowledge and trying to figure out, okay. And all that's for transparency purposes so that we can educate our consumer. Right. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's absolutely (laughs) right. Because it's important to us because our consumer is our family. It's our friends. It's the people. It's our community. It's, it's the people that we want to take care of. It's what I want to feed to my kid. It's what I want to feed to my family. Um, so the more we could figure out and the more we can learn about it, the better we can make it. Right. So it led us to, you know, opening the butcher shop, the brick and mortar butcher shop, going from there. Okay, how can we make it better? Okay, there's a missing link. So it actually, Chris and I went slaughterhouse shopping which is not something you do every day. And it led us into something that, you know, I don't think Chris and I as kids ever, you know, thought about owning a processing facility and all the things that come into it. And we won't, you know, and get we, into details. Yeah, but, no, I, I mean, wanna, we'd love I for it. And we will. But yeah. I mean, we would love for us to have been able to continue the way we were, but we couldn't without controlling that that aspect. You know, we, we worked 
directly with the farmer to make sure that they were being fed and raised properly. And, and we lost control when it went to the processing facility. So with people was, who don't care, with people who, you know, just don't have the processes and people who don't necessarily understand. There's a large disconnect from people who have worked in the standard industry of agriculture right now with the people that have the the views of the way it should be Mm -hmm. and because it's the status quo and because you can use a shock stick and it's legal and it's normal doesn't mean you should do it right so you know we came in and said well we're going to take this tool away from you because it's not humane and then people look as well what am i supposed to do yeah and and i mean even with with our facility it's, it's two hours outside of nashville but it's 30 45 minutes away from the farm so once again, it was more important for us to take the extra time to drive to a facility that was a little bit further away in order to shorten that, that travel time for the animals, which are a lot less accustomed to it. They don't know their favorite radio stations. You know, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> they don't know how to tune into Heritage Radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you own the slaughterhouse and we do. the processing. Yeah. You, you own basically the entire In process our system, it's farmer, us, you. Right. That's it. So, and I mean, I know that is a huge challenge for um, farmers that are small, especially farmers raising animals across the country. Access to slaughterhouses um, is an issue that comes up all the time when I'm talking to people because, you know, I think this thing happened where all the smaller slaughterhouses went out of business as um, animal agriculture was consolidated. And if you're not a CAFO and you can't, show up with thousands of animals, the bigger slaughterhouses don't even want to... Yeah, they, um, won't even, they won't even look. Yeah, so was that... How did that factor in? Like, we're, when you were going out and saying, how do we make this work? Were farmers telling you that th- that was an issue, or...? Yeah, and we still hear it today, and uh, at one point in our history, as we were expanding and going, we, we purchased a, a slaughterhouse and processing facility that was uh, already working and had been one for a couple of decades. So it had a customer base and we were actually processing for farmers that we were getting meat from for their farmers markets and things. Um, the issue is, is that everybody is so price sensitive because you're competing against a facility that's doing 20,000, 20,000 head of cattle a day. And we're processing two for farmer Joe mm-hmm. and you just can't make it to where the slaughterhouse can make enough money to pay its employees properly and keep up and maintaining, that the farmers at the farmer's market can be price competitive enough at the grocery stores because they're already two, three times the price because of the way they raise the animals. So it just continues to add on. And until we make you know, the Porter Road mentality to 100% pasteurized, no antibiotics, no hormones, dry age, you know, all of those, the industry standard, there's such a far gap that the slaughterhouses that are disappearing that the farmers are so concerned about. The issue is, is that the farmers can't pay them enough Mm -hmm. to continue to open and operate. And we tried extremely hard, like day and night all the time to try to make it work, to try to make it work. And the, the only way that we could really, figure out how to make it work is sell through Porter road, join, join the, the join team. the force. Yeah. And it's cause the commodity of scale being able to bring in a, you know, truckload of 10 beef rather than bringing me one or two beef. And we, we 
never want to get to the point to where we're doing 10,000 head at one facility because that completely defeats what Porter Road is and is about. But so you're saying because you kind of aggregate from the small farm. So there, there's an issue with that too because so there's, there's incredible farmers out there and there's incredible products that come out of it. And most people don't know that meat is truly season, seasonal. So it's just like produce. It's just like vegetables. There's actually seasons for different animals. So that's why you see traditional recipes. You know, they get heavy on one, you know, if it's pork or beef product, because generally beef was harvested in the fall, pork was harvested in the winter, and then you harvested chicken or lambs in the spring and chickens during the summer. So it would be a seasonal. And because as people nowadays we just expect we can get anything at every time any time mm-hmm. of year um what we have to do is also please our customers so that's why we do 100 percent pasture raised but we don't do 100 percent grass fed we actually feed them a grain supplement to that way it becomes a more standardized uh product it's more recognizable to the consumer because a lot of the times if you bring in different farms that are 100% grass-fed, you can taste the difference between the farms. And if it's springtime and there's, you know, spring onions popping up, it'll get a little bit of that oniony flavor and it's too gamey for most consumers. Um, So it's about making sure the customers are happy with the quality of product. So that's why we have our affidavit that our farmers sign and they make sure that, you know, you stick to this strict plan. And then we work with farmers that'll work with each other to make sure that we have a standardized product from across the farms that we're still able to pasture them. We're still able to do it in a proper uh, responsible way, but our product isn't going to be different stake to stake. So what are some of the criteria then that farmers, um, are following that work with you. So it's not 100% grass-fed. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the requirements are that, you know, you... So we say 100% pasture-raised, which to us means outside its entire life. Um, So that's the most important thing to us. So all of our uh, lamb, beef, and chickens are all raised out on grass. So they all see grass, they move around, um, and then our pigs are actually raised in the woods. So one of our main farmers we use, he uses a lot of his pasture land. He'll grow his own uh, non-GMO grains, so soybeans, corn. Uh, he'll be able to rotate through them, and then he uh, pastures the lambs and beef behind it. And then in the woods, he does all of the pork because pigs love being in the woods. They love rooting. They actually build little houses and stuff. It's real cool. <laughs> um, so 100% pasture raised is the most important. No antibiotics, no added hormones ever. Uh, no crates uh, confinement of any time. So no gestation crates, um, no confinement for any amount of time. The birds do live in a Joel Stolitan style cage that gets moved to fresh pasture every day. Um, that's to protect them, though. That's to protect them because if you didn't, they would all die. A bird would come by Predators. and snatch one at a time. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's... They don't make the best decisions. Yeah, birds... Birds would go extinct if we didn't, like, <laughs> seriously, turkeys and chickens would not be around if we did not farm them. Yeah. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, and then also we have uh, requirements in the feed that we do, too. Um, so we make sure there's there's no animal remnants in the feed ever. Uh, it's actually legal to feed beef blood to beef, and it's legal to feed 
chicken shit and chicken feathers to beef. Um, so we're really concerned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's non-GMO chicken shit. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, we're concerned about what they're feeding, what they're getting fed. And then we make sure like when we when we go through it, Every time we go visit a farm, every time we do that, we, we go grab feed tags. We make sure that we, we cross-check it. We I mean, even in the case with Joey, one of our farmers, he's he was uh, traditionally a row cropper. So, you know, just constantly taking nourishments out of the earth. And, and, and what he's actually worked to do is convert that old row cropping uh, pasture back into raising animals and then actually growing his own non-GMO corns and all of these things and mixing his own feed on site. Mm. I like how you said corns. Corns. It's multiple corns. <laughs> it's multiple corn is corns. To be clear. Three or more corns. <laughs> um, I, no, and, and I, I love that, that idea of like, you know, farmers that are changing their practices to sell to you. And um, I want to push back a little bit on the idea of um, kind of meeting consumers where they are when it comes to grass fed. Um, so, I mean, I guess if you're, if, if part of your mission is kind of change the food system and make sure that we're doing things better when it comes to the way that we farm, I mean, isn't there an argument for trying to change consumer preference? Absolutely. Yeah. There's an argument for everything. Absolutely. But let's walk before we run because if, but if, how are you ever going to, well, let's, let's, let's knock out, CAFOs, let's get rid of it, concentrated animal feed operations. Mm. And then the next thing we can do is get rid of grain. But right. right now we have to completely change the system. So what we're trying to do at Porter Road is decentralize the meat industry. So if we can have facilities that are closer to the farms, that are that are multiple shipping facilities. out multiple facilities, that are shipping out, that are lowering the cost of shipping meat to the consumer, lowering the transportation from the animals, it's increasing the revenue into these small rural places so adding jobs to these these communities there's a lot of benefits and i do agree with you in a a perfect world we would go back to that but you have to completely change the mindset of the entire planet because if you said tomorrow that well you can't have beef in the spring because it's not fall yet Mm. people are going to look at you like you have 12 heads and then go buy the KFO cheeseburger. Right. So we're trying to change the meat industry slowly, and we're trying to get people to start thinking about it. And we'll and always have beef during the spring. <laughs> don't, don't It'll be available. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, what, what we have the challenge of, because I have lots of very good friends that are very strict and staunch, and I agree with them, and that's why I hang out with them, because I have the same beliefs. But I think... You know, we need to make sure that it's not an elitist thing. It is for everybody. And if you want to go, you know, from A to Z, you're going to skip out on a lot of people along the way. Mm-hmm. And you're not really going to make a difference. That's like saying everybody go vegan tomorrow. Right. It's not going to work. I'm sorry. We're no. going to eat meat. We're going to continue to eat meat. And let's do it in a responsible way. Right. Um, okay. So I want to – I have a million – Questions. I want to talk more about um, the online part of your business, which is a newer thing that you launched. Um, But we're going to take a little break, hear a message from a sponsor, and then we'll be right back and we'll launch into part two. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct. 
largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. All right, this is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Um, we are jumping back into a conversation about meat and <laughs> farming, and we're here with um, the founders of Porter Road. Uh, we talked a lot about um, sort of the system that you guys are working within in Nashville um, before the break, and I want to talk a little bit about um, the economics of your business and um, the difference between the brick-and-mortar shop that you've started how you're selling now, um, and where all that's going in the future. So first of all, I think you just, tell us a little little bit about, I think you just uh, launched online sales, is that right? In February, yes. February, okay. So what was the um, thinking behind that? Why go online? Thinking behind that was that um, in order for us to continue to grow, we had to reach as many people as possible. And I mean, online sales is is clearly the best way to do that. So in February, we launched the first uh, whole animal uh, online butcher shop. Yeah, so it gave us an opportunity to be able to make a bigger difference. And we, over the five years previous, when we were working behind the counter and working at the butcher shop, we made a lot of new friends, met a lot of customers, and... Five years is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So people start moving away. They graduate from college. They move across the country and they became part of the family. So we kept in communication with them and, you know, we would get these emails every once in a while that was like, would you please just send me some of your bacon? Like, I miss it so much. I can't get it anywhere else. And then uh, it just one conversation after another, you know, Chris with one of his great, you know, grade school buddies, Ryan Darnell, having a conversation and starting to like open up this avenue. Me giving my dad a bunch of trouble about eating, you know, KFO meat and him just saying, just send me an FN steak then. Yeah, because I don't have access to that. Yeah, I don't have a Porter Road down the street from my house. And it, it really opened up to us that if we really want to make a difference, we really want to make a change, we have to reach a broader audience. And like we've been saying, you know, we don't want to be uh, an elite company. We don't want to be a special location company. We think we can be a company for everyday meat eating. We can be something that can help change the world for better uh, with great flavored meat, which is just an added bonus. Um, so it gave us an opportunity to really expand our wings and really try to make a big difference. Right. But part of um, the foundation of what you guys are trying to do that you talked about earlier is um, kind of regionalize uh, meat production. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but no, um, that's that's absolutely right. right. And yeah. and you know, I feel like you talked a lot about how um, working with small farmers in local food systems is really important to you. So doesn't then putting that meat online and shipping it around the country doesn't that contradict um, that model? 
No, because as we continue to expand and as we get more customers and we can grow, the idea is that we're going to open up more facilities across the country that will bring in a more localized product. But once again, that's where the grain finishing comes in that no matter if you're a Porter Road customer and you're going to a beach house for the week in Florida, but you actually live in Seattle, it's going to taste the same. But it's going to come from, if you're in Seattle, it's going to come from a northwest uh, farm, where if you're down in Florida, it's probably going to come from, uh, you know, Kentucky, Kentucky farm, a southern farm. And by being able to standardize that product, what you do is you make it to where people are familiar and people don't like the unfamiliar. That's why large fast food chains have been so successful. But then aren't you just acting like a large fast food chain? But you're not because you're decentralizing the system and you're still working with the small farms, but you're giving people the comfort that the quality level will always be there to where we've even experienced it by working with different grass-fed farmers and just simply the different practices or the different grasses or the different time of year, you could have a night and day product. You can have a really amazing, delicious grass-fed steak, or you can have one that tastes like a wild venison or deer. Mm-hmm. And it's it takes a lot of skill, a lot of know-how, and a lot of attention to the details where you can't even harvest. If it's over 95 degrees for more than a week, you wouldn't be able to harvest beef that week because all of that intermuscular fat will be shedded from them being so hot. So there's a lot that goes into that, you know, perfect world grass-fed beef, but there's some kind of situation to where we can have the best of both worlds. We can have the consistency, we can have the quality while still taking care of Earth and taking care of our farmers and taking care of the world, rural communities. Ooh, that's a tongue twister there. <laughs> I got a, excited, you Well, know? I think you're getting excited because there's Everybody's like a excited, Roberta's like. Um, like staff meal happening or something right outside our <laughs> little window. <laughs> it's pretty rowdy out there. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned a few times this idea of you don't want to be elitist. You don't want, you know, you want to be a, a company that anyone can buy the meat and it's every, an everyday product. Um how how are you um, making that happen? Like, how do you make the economics of this work? We know that it costs more to do meat this way compared to commodity beef. Um, so how do you get to a price where people can um, afford to buy the meat? Um, I think it's more about education yeah. and about people understanding that a ground beef is not ground beef, mm-hmm. that a pork chop's not a pork chop, that bacon's not a bacon, um, and what you're going to get out of it. You know, first and foremost, the most simple and thing that hits you in the face is the flavor. You're going to be able to taste so much more flavor, so you're not going to need to eat as much. You're not going to need a half-pound burger, maybe a third-pound burger. I mean, maybe some of us still want a half-pound burger because it's delicious. But people want a half-pound burger. (laughs) You know, so you you don't have to eat as much of it. We always, you know, we're a meat company that will tell you to eat less meat. Yeah. We eat too much meat as a country, as a world for that matter. Absolutely. And what we say is eat a better quality meat. And eat your vegetables as well Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's important to have a balanced diet. And, you know, if everybody switched over and everybody only ate carrots, that would become an environmental disaster too. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is balance everything out, eat a higher quality, better product that's going to, you know, be better in the outcome. But you also, you, you, you don't have to eat as much meat as we always meet. Just eat a better quality, like stuff from (laughs) porterroad.com. (laughs) (laughs) Porterhead.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And what about, um, are you guys doing anything with the other, sort of other, I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now, <laughs> um, cuts of meat? So I know that when when you sell meat, right, there's this like, you mentioned grass fed, or uh, ground beef many times, you know, there's the steaks that everyone expects. And then there's the rest of the animal that people are just not used to eating. It's funny. That's actually what got us into the online sales. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, we call them the, the brand name steaks, your ribeyes, strips, tenderloin. They sell themselves. That's what people come in looking for. That's what people know. That's what they want to put on the grill on the weekend. And us working with a whole animal, which we've always worked with a whole animal, everything we've ever done, we've never opened a box. It's always been an entire animal. It's all about utilization, which brings us back to the economics of what makes this possible for us to be able to ship this meat around the country. Um, but those cuts that would pile up, you know, because we didn't have the reach to sell them through our brick and mortar or through our wholesale, um, is what pushed us to actually say we have to reach a larger audience if we want to continue to grow because we have to be able to push these things. And as we were getting into the online sales, that was our biggest fear is that we weren't going to be able to push these things. We were going to constantly have to educate people on the picanha and the flat iron and the, the flap steak. And sc- anyway, it goes on and on. Um, but it turns out that that's what people are looking for. People are looking for those more obscure air quotes, uh, <laughs> cuts, you know, and, um, and that's it, it, it turns out that those are the things that we have the hardest time keeping in stock. Because well, those are, yeah, they're the, the popular items right now. So the, the butcher's cuts, air quotes again. Um, <laughs> air quotes everywhere. All around. Air quotes. Yeah. Uh, so the, the butcher cuts are the ones that we've always played around with and had fun with. And I think it the butcher's cuts almost became an elitist thing to where it used to be what the butchers would take home because nobody could sell a chuck eye. Nobody you could sell beef it. knee one year for Christmas. I did. It was a delicious beef knee. <laughs> um, but it's it's they're becoming trendy. They're becoming hip, but the, they're delicious. So it's it's not like a fad because we just happen to figure out oh this single muscle is amazing and delicious. And like Chris was saying, we're all about utilization. We're making sure we have respect for the animal, for the farmer. We always tell our butchers when they're cutting, somebody's already spent two and a half years of their life making this so don't f it up in five minutes because if you make a missed cut you know you've wasted two and a half years of somebody's hard work and life going into that so we try to utilize every last piece of it so we pull up these obscure muscles that actually end up being delicious flavorful steaks and now you start to see your big food publications starting to talk about them and the secret things but it used to be you know you had to have a porter road down the street from your house but not everybody lives in nashville they're trying to. They're all moving there as fast as they can, but not everybody lives there yet. There's plenty of conduct. Um, so <laughs> by us having them online, it you know kind of raised awareness, and people were saying, oh, oh, I can get these. And now we have a customer that every single time there's Chuck Eyes on the website, he buys every last one of them. Hmm. We also have a customer that does that with skirt steaks. Um, small so, skirt steaks. Small skirt specifically. specifically. Yeah. <laughs> he does not like large skirt steaks. <laughs> but like a pecan cut, which is a you know really amazing South American cut that you see on like Brazilian steakhouse posters on the side of the highway. But it's <laughs> it's those amazing delicious cuts that people just don't hear of and then when you cook it you're like where's this been all my life? Mm-hmm. I don't need one of those designer cuts. I don't, you know, I don't need the it's funny how those things constantly get remarketed as well. Like we call it the flap, but it's better known as the bivet. Yeah, and we're gonna use the French name that instead. Fancy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, well, now a well, 
for that matter, we used to sell it's the pecana is a sirloin cap. That's mm. what it's called. We and call it what it is. Yeah. We call it the sirloin <laughs> cap forever. And then you know we we hired some really smart people, and they said, well, maybe you should actually call it by its Spanish name, and it, it worked pretty well. <laughs> Those smart people, you know. <laughs> oh. Um. So. I could keep talking to you forever. Um, I want to, before, we have a couple of minutes left. Um, because we are on the farm report, I just want to go back really quickly to the farmers that you work with. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, some of the challenges that they face, but can you can you guys just talk a little bit before we go about the things that you want people to know about the farmers in where you are in Kentucky and Tennessee, um, are there things you think people don't realize about the challenges of um, farming this way and what they face on a day-to-day basis? There's a way out of the status quo that's not that crazy difficult. And I think it, it baffles my mind every time I talk to these farmers that grow thousands and thousands of acres of grain and know that they're going to lose money at the end of the year. And it's just mind-boggling to me. And it's just the way it is. It's the way it's been for 60 years. And there is a way out of it. There are markets. There are people that want to be a part of it. But the products that Porter Road sells, anybody that we would even start talking to is less than 1% of all the meat raised in the United States. So... What we've said earlier, our standards is less than 1% of all meat grown in the United States. And a lot of these rural farmers, the reason why we always hear about these epidemics in rural America is because there's no money, there's no jobs, there's nothing going on. But by raising animals the correct way, by bringing back, you know, taking away the monocultures out of the rural communities and bringing back that diversity and letting people farm again is going to revive our country and make it, you know, a, a, a powerhouse again. Hmm. You want to add anything, Chris? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, on that note, um, we're going to wrap things up. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, I usually ask at this point where people can find you if they want to stay up on what Porter you do. www.porterroad.com. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's going to forget. Um, <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for being here. We appreciate your time. You were a blast. Yes. Thank you. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to, rate, and share. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.